Okay, so a hush is falling and the last few stragglers are, are coming in, so we might get started this evening. Uh, welcome to the National Library of Australia. I'm Murray-Louise Ayres and it's my pleasure to welcome you to what is the penultimate fellowship presentation of 2017. I acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we meet and pay my respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, past, present and to come. Now, earlier this year, I described our National Library Fellowships as an investment in curiosity. And curiosity is a word that I think exemplifies our fellows. They come to the library with a deep desire to learn about their topic and inquisitiveness that may lead them and us in surprising directions. I'm really very grateful to the many private donors who've been willing to invest in the curiosity of Australia's research community, never quite knowing where the research will lead. We don't ask for a lifetime research priorities. We don't really care what the outputs are. Um, we just want people to have that uh, experience of immersing themselves in the collections. Um, in particular, I'm grateful to a wonderful and generous group of past and present members of the National Library Council who supported our fellow Emeritus Professor Leslie Johnson. Now, Leslie was awarded the 2016 National Library of Australia Fellowship, supported by this consortium of past and present council members, for her research on the institutions of the humanities, but had to postpone the commencement of her fellowship until the middle of September this year. A leading academic in cultural studies and in research strategy and policy in higher education, Leslie held leadership appointments in universities for 14 years until her retirement for full-time work in 2009. From 2012 until 2014, she was the president of the Australian Academy of the Humanities. That's lovely to see friends from the Academy with us tonight and was president of the Australian Council of Learned Academies. During that period, she drove the publication of The Power of the Humanities, case studies from leading Australian researchers, published in 2015, and which I have on my office shelf, and the collaborative project with the Academy of Social Sciences, Mapping the Humanities, Arts and Social Sciences in Australia, 2013. Now, Leslie's passion for the humanities is at the heart of her fellowship. Over the past few months, Leslie has examined the history of the humanities in Australia post-Second World War through the lens of the library's collections. She's especially focused on the history of the Australian Academy of the Humanities, key humanities scholars, and how the library developed as a major centre for research in Australia. Now, I've enjoyed a number of conversations with Leslie about her research, and our council benefited in October from a sneak preview on Leslie research and a kind of helicopter view of the state of research in Australia. And I'm very much looking forward to hearing more about her work this evening. So please join me in welcoming Rebecca Montague.
start this talk, I wanted to um, start by uh, thanking the National Library for uh, the wonderful privilege and pleasure of uh, this fellowship. It's been so good to be working in this magnificent uh, building in such a, a lovely environment to work with. But it's the staff who've made it a really special um, experience. I think the best experience that I've ever had as a researcher over the last 40 or so years of my career. And so I really wanted to thank uh, the library for that. And I wanted to give special thanks to, to Robin, um, Robin Holmes, who's here tonight. Um, great to be seeing her. She's been um, away for a while. Robin and I um, overlapped uh, at, uh, when I started my fellowship, and the warmth and generosity of um, Robin's welcome, the, the value of everything that she was telling me, the uh, interest that I found in her own work, and in her putting me onto some things that she'd written very relevant to, to my project, for example, on um, Menzies, and, and how come this building was so grand, <laughs> it was all on the mountain. Um, so I really wanted to pay tribute to, to Robin and say how wonderful it is to see her tonight. Thank you very much. <laughs> Tomorrow is, the, is the, the actual day of her retirement, <laughs> so there should be more celebrated today, as you said. Okay, so I feel that I've really just started to scratch uh, the surface uh, in terms of looking at the materials in the library relevant uh, to my project and yet I've only got one more week uh, to go on this fellowship. But fortunately, I have an Australian Research Council grant, uh, which will enable, enable me to come back for the next uh, few years and to do more research. Uh, so I'm very pleased about that, and that means that this, this talk tonight is very much a work in progress talk. Um, but I rather like that because, because I feel that I can test out some ideas um, with you, get some feedback from you. But also, I'm sure that there's um, many people here today who know much more about the library and about the 1960s library than I do. And so I'm very um, happy to and really looking forward to learning uh, from you either um, immediately after this in the discussion or if you think about things subsequently. So I look forward uh, to learning from you and all this. So this presentation is based on a broader project uh, that I'm working on about the history of the institutions of the humanities in Australia since the Second World War. And my focus is on three institutions, so that's the universities, learned academies, and major public research libraries. Huge project, just happen to narrow down as I go, of course. Um, my focus uh, for the three key institutions uh, in the library project is on uh, the, um, uh, the uh, Humanities Research Centre at ANU, the uh, Academy of Humanities, and the, uh, the National Library itself. So I've been accessing a wealth of material about uh, those projects. But I have to confess that um, one of the most exciting features of uh, this fellowship for me has been actually starting to learn about the history of the library itself. So my talk has shifted a bit, um, and because obviously that was uh, what I was going to talk about was announced some time ago. And really now what I'm going to be doing tonight is focusing on the National uh, Library itself and some mention of the Humanities Research Centre and the Academy of Humanities. So I'm going to be concentrating on it and looking at how the National Library was functioning in the 1950s and 60s, particularly the 60s, and then how it was shaping uh, the humanities in the period and what, what that meant uh, for
we be clear about what we want to achieve for the future? As Jennifer Summit notes, just as the history of science corrects the popular myth of scientific progress, a rigorous history of the humanities could correct the myth of timelessness that persists in many defences of the humanities today. So this is part of why I'm interested in the humanities institutions, why I want to document the practices of humanities research and the role of institu various institutions in shaping them. But there is another reason too why I became interested in doing a history specifically focusing on the institutions of the humanities. I was privileged in 2003 to be asked by Alex Byrne, who was then the chief librarian of the State Library of New South Wales, to undertake a review of the Mitchell Library. Shortly after I commenced my review, a very public battle erupted about the library's planned changes to its famous main reading room of the Mitchell Library, changes that had been decided well before my review was organised. I was very interested in, but of course also deeply concerned about the strong emotions that were being articulated by people objecting to these changes. It made me start to think about how deeply attached people can be to the buildings of public libraries and how such spaces are so central to the research practices of the humanities scholars and the sense of themselves as researchers. Yet I was puzzled too by why, if this was the case, I was finding in the course of my review that there seemed to have, to have been little explicit or regular engagement by humanities researchers with the library more generally in the last few decades at least. It seemed only when that there was an apparent attack on an iconic building or space of public research libraries that researchers sought to be involved. It made me realise how important it is for humanities researchers to reflect on what role institutions like research libraries play in the work of the humanities. Library Reading Room, which was the, uh, the, the focus of this public uh, outcry. This is actually taken uh, in, uh, before 2013, and what they're objecting to was that uh, this room was going to be taken over completely by uh, young people with their water bottles and computers and so on who put in the claim, and they wanted it to be retained for um, researchers to still work in this iconic building. Um, so what's happened argue with <laughs> what's happened is they've put a glass wall uh, two thirds of the way down the library where now um, researchers work on the regular. So young people primarily are working in the library on their computers. So that was the, the battle at that time. So this then is the um, background to my project as a whole and to why I'm so interested in, in libraries. It was amazing to be able to be there when this um, For this fellowship, obviously I'm focusing on the National Library itself, but I needed to focus on a particular historical period for the fellowship as, the, as there is so much research to be done. So I chose the 1960s because of a comment made by the distinguished scholar, Professor Ian Donaldson, in an interview for the National Library's oral history collection in which he remarked that the 60s, and he was also talking about the 70s, were the golden years of the humanities. He included the building of the National Library this time, a 
was one of the signs of the exceptional character of this era for the humanities in Australia, referring particularly to Canberra. So we're now going to look a little bit at that argument and the flourishings uh, in Canberra. foreshores of Lake Burley Griffin from Mount Ainsley today, we see a magnificent range of public buildings on its southern shores. A number of these can, said, can be said to represent a blossoming of the humanities in the 1960s. On one side is a tr parliamentary triangle, on this side of the lake is obviously the National Library of Australia, with its building opened in 1968. On the other side of the lake is the National Gallery of Australia, which architects were announced in the same year, although its building wasn't completed until 1982 for various reasons. At the foot of the mountain is the War Memorial, which, is, which through its Museum of Historical Records also supports humanities teaching and research. It was opened in 1941. And then not visible from the mountain, unfortunately, I couldn't get everybody to do this, not, this um, not visible from the mountain, but also important to my wider story, over on the campus of the ANU is the Humanities Research Centre, which is now housed in the Sir Roland Wilson Building, which is on the northern edges of the campus. Uh, such a centre began to be discussed at ANU in the late 1960s. From 1975, it was housed for some time in the lovely area, which was purpose-built and designed for it in the A.B. Pope Building. The Australian Academy of Humanities was initially housed in the library's new building in 1969 on the invitation of Harold White, later Sir Harold White, of course, the first national librarian. It eventually moved onto the ANU campus and has been housed since around 2001 in a modest wooden house on Wilson Street. <laughs> but it's quite a constellation of institutions of the humanities and all experienced key moments in their development in the 1960s. So to understand these developments, I found I quickly, of course, had to look back to the 1950s to identify the forces that prompted them. 1957 increasingly emerged as a pivotal year in all, of that, in all that I was looking at. Parallel developments in public policy emerged around this time all to be important in terms of the growing significance of the institutions of humanities. The report of the National Library Inquiry Committee, the Patton Report, was published in this year, leading to the National Library Act of 1960 and the commencement of plans for a monumental building for the library. Similarly, the report on the Australian universities, called the Murray Report, was published in 1957. The humanities community welcomed the report as recognising their value. It led to the establishment of the Australian Universities Commission, which approved ANU's plans for the Humanities Research Centre in 1972. The Australian Humanities Research Council, the predecessor to the Australian Academy of Humanities, was established in 1957, and its first few years were preoccupied with producing a major report called the Humanities in Australia, which was published in 1959. In the 1960s, Council, uh, the uh, Council began discussing its transformation into an academy and the Australian Academy of Humanities.
established in 1969. All these developments seem to give credence to Ian Donaldson's suggestion that the humanities were indeed flourishing in Canberra in the 1960s and on to the 70s. monumental, the most magisterial. <laughs> I think that does work well. <laughs> okay, but there's a slightly earlier report too that clearly played a decisive role. Eric Spark describes the 1955 report by the Senate Select Committee on the Development of Canberra as a turning point for the city. The committee envisaged Canberra as a city developed as a cultural, educational and tourist centre. It seems, too, that this vision of an intellectual and cultural capital was shared by many at the time. Harold White, as librarian for what was then referred to as the Commonwealth National Library, described Canberra in 1954 as a centre for learning, of a centre of learning, I should say, and the eventual collection and placing of buildings along the shores of the library certainly seemed to give material form to this aspiration. Places in this talk where I could have used a photo of Harold White, but I thought <laughs> I'll do this one and do it at this time because he comes in so often. What's interesting about this photo is when you see it from the right, it's so much more dramatic than what it is in the photograph on the right. It's ready material to Harold White, who wrote this paper in 1963, and I will be talking about this whole development of collections in the 60s and this particular event, which leads to many places. To the, um, the Senate Select Committee. Clearly, the Senate Select Committee report was of key importance in giving substance to this aspiration, even though the report was initially met with general approbation in the Senate and in the media, particularly outside Canberra. Thanks to the passion and skill of John McCalman, Liberal Senator for New South Wales, who initiated and chaired this committee, Sparks calculates that around more than 70% of its long list of recommendations were eventually implemented in some form. Most importantly, this included the establishment of the National Capital Development Commission, the body that took on the oversight of the plans for the National Library and its being positioned on the shores <coughs> of the lake in its current magisterial position. There's a photo of Senator Kalman. I just thought it was interesting that you could find a photo of him and he was obviously very effective whole process of this committee and very much supported by Menzies as they developed their ideas uh, about Canberra and he was a very passionate supporter of having uh, an, a major national library building. So what particularly shaped the National Library as an institution of the humanities in this clearly exciting time in the 1960s and how do I see it as playing a role in fashioning the humanities of this time? turn uh, to look at the significance of the building of the uh, of this building uh, in, uh, in the 1960s for uh, the humanities. This is a photo that Robin also uses in her So Robert Menzies is here at the laying of the foundation stone of the National Library of Australia in 1953. So Robert Menzies as Prime Minister was intensely interested in issues to concern with the library and initially planned an inquiry into what went to the Commonwealth National Library in 1953. 
had various issues caused this initiative to be stalled until 1956, when he appointed Sir George Patton, the Vice-Chancellor of the University of Melbourne, to undertake such an inquiry. The resulting Patton report was a pragmatic document, but also visionary in its own way. It was not a total surprise to some, at least, in the library that the committee recommended the separation of the national and parliamentary function, functions of the library. It noted that the development, the, that developments in the financing of the library, issues of ministerial responsibility, and so on, had led them to the conclusion that while due weight should be given to the original intention to establish a library on the model of the Library of Congress in Washington, thereby combining national and legislative to support functions, there had been such a radical departure in their view from this model that they were, they were obliged to reject it. The committee also observed that extra-parliamentary services were now far more extensive than parliamentary services. They proposed the separation of these two functions and placing responsibility for the National Library, so to be put, in the, hand, <coughs> in the hands of a board of trustees, a well-tried system, they noted, used by libraries in many British communities. Particularly the Library of Congress, I just <laughs> obviously got columns and certain sort of grandeur, uh, similar to this library that they touched the building at the um, 18th This, um, well, this library will come uh, back into my story as I go on. So this proposal may seem to be signalling an abrupt end for the dream that had guided staff at all levels in the library since 1907, when Sir Frederick Holder, the Speaker of the House and Chair of the Library Committee, articulated what he regarded as the library's proper ambition. The ideal of building up for some time when Parliament should be established in the federal capital, a great public library on the lines of the world-famed Library of Congress. The Patton Committee was quite clear, however, that in recommending the separation of parliamentary and extra-parliamentary functions, they were not abandoning belief in a noble future for the National Library. They rejected the criticism that still circulated that Canberra would never be important as a centre of population and of scholarship. We do not accept this view, they announced. We are satisfied that Canberra should be made an effective national capital and we are therefore in favour of the development there of a great national res reference library, rendering, <coughs> me, rendering effective service to government departments, local universities, students, research students from elsewhere in Australia and overseas, other libraries and residents on their territories. Not quite as inspiring, as uninspiring statement as Holder's um, 1907 statement about um, the, the Library of Congress model, but nevertheless a clear expression of their in belief in the library's future distinction. This was further articulated in the committee's uh, comments on the need for a new building, although this was indicated in a rather backhand sort of way. Their report had recommended that the newly developed archives function of the library should also become a separate institution. They reasoned that only a fireproof modest building was needed for these purposes. Not one 
National Library. Few who advocate a new library building may receive the reason would quarrel with the view that it should have dignity and civility. So the National Library, of, of, uh, National library Act of 1960 emerged out of this report, established, establishing it as an independent statutory body for, and a building appropriate to its national role began to be planned. And the history of uh, this wonderful building of the National Library is well documented. But two features of its planning particularly interest me here as important in shaping its role as an institution of the humanities. First, the aspirations articulated for the building itself and expressed in its Greco-Roman design. And se second, the attention paid to its internal design. And I want to fo focus on these two features. that it was no longer appropriate to base the ambitions for the National Library on the Library Congress model. The guiding role of this image of the library as a grand institution did in fact persist. Indeed, the iconic importance of the Library of Congress for the National Library has continued to be evoked in all sorts of ways, minor and major, into the present day. It was important in the architectural brief for the building of the National Capital Development Commission specified, the National Library is a major reference and research institution with wide and varied functions. As it develops, it may be expected to resemble in, in range and availability of its services the dynamic model typified by the Library of Congress rather than the, than the more static form of some of the older European national libraries. This fact, specifications, will govern both its functions and its building. of the parliamentary rectangle at the top behind um, shows um, the National Library at the back there. But it has Parliament House going to be on the edge of the lake. So it's a, a view of, of the, at that time, that all of these monumental buildings would be alongside each other in the, uh, in the la on the lake. The, the brief for the building described the importance of the site within the parliamentary triangle and the plans for the new Parliament House which at that stage was to be nearby on the lake. The character of the buildings on the in the triangle, it stated, is of great consequence, and it is considered desirable that they be endowed with qualities appropriate to the centre of government. They should express a feeling of stability and permanence. The proximity to the Parliament House site meant that the library building should not, need to, seek to, should not seek to dominate its site, but to be an integral part of the monumental Walter Bunning, um, was the architect for um, the library, was a very young architect, taken in 1945, where he's extremely young. <laughs> um, but one of the th features about him that the, um, the National Development Commission liked was actually his use of this. So he was still fairly um, youthful uh, in 1960. So Walter Bunning, the architect who was to work full time on the building for almost seven years, was enthusiastic about it. if it was to fulfill its role as a national building and for the national aspiration it would articulate. He explained shortly after it had been opened that he tried to create a timeless building, not a withered building, one that has stood last for centuries. 
the artist he selected to work on their vacuum dome. The magnificent decorative features of the building shared this enthusiasm too. Tom Bass wrote in 1966, accepting invitation to work on the bas relief that looms over the, the entrance to the library. This is him uh, when the, the um, extraordinary bas relief there in 1968. He wrote, he wrote all his letters to Bunning in, in um, typed by hand in brown ink, which is uh, fascinating and somewhat difficult to, to read, but fascinating. So he, he wrote um, to Bunning, in accepting uh, the invitation to work on this particular um, piece of sculpture. Conscious of the importance of this work and the boundless implications of a library such as this will be to the community it serves, I am eager to explore and develop the great themes evoked by thoughts of the library as the place where the essences of our cultural and intellectual life can be gathered together. So these aspirations were also to be articulated not just in its external design, but in features such as the uh, entrance and foyer, which Bunning saw as creating a spacious atmosphere of scale and dignity befitting a public building of national significance. It had to be appropriate for a major and reference and research institution, he said. As you all know very well, we came through it tonight, but I thought we should have a, a photo. And again, sensing, giving a sense of the scale and, and the grandeur of that uh, foyer. Bunning was sensitive too to the experience of people working uh, in the library, so that those, quoting him, inside have a calm, serene outlook, ideal for working and studying. A number of library staff also gave a great deal of attention to the working environment for users in their recommendations for its internal design. They were keen for the building to be innovative and modern inside, drawing on developments in libraries overseas. They were assisted in their planning by the appointment in 1964 of the graphic designer Arthur Robertson as a consultant who worked particularly on the floor and furniture designs, and Keyes Mark Medcalf in 1961, who was a retired director of libraries at Harvard and a highly respected expert on library design who had already been involved with the library's development in the 1950s. So all of these people were very, um, were paying a great deal of attention to all sorts of features, all the features of the library and the internal um, features. And one of the things that interested me in, in their describing what was modern, what, what should be modern about the building is that they wanted to try out, but they weren't quite sure whether compactuses might be <laughs> something appropriate for the time. So it's interesting that that's um, something that they're talking about in the mid-1960s, but very suspiciously <laughs> So, so um, the building was then planned down to the most minute detail to have both the gravitas and the functionality to make it a space of concentrated work and reflection, a thought-producing environment, conveying the feeling that those using its spaces were engaging in something that was bigger than themselves, part of a long history of thought and reflection, but it was also to be modern and exciting. Its monumental character gave expression to the aspiration for a nation, a liberal democratic culture based on reasoned public discourse, and its beauty and quiet grandeur, both in terms of the building and its internal spaces, articulated a commitment to what a humanities scholar Ray Chow has referred to as the pleasures of mental labor. 
evident is that these features of the building not only reflected certain notions of knowledge making in the humanities, but they were also institutionalizing these, giving them material form. The building and its spaces celebrated, but were also contributing to a shaping of a particular culture of knowledge making with its characteristic practices, ways of mind, and understandings of the self as a researcher. It both authorized and rendered these possible. At the same time, the statue of the building was announcing the value of this culture to the national interest through its magisterial pres presence and internal grandeur. The solidity of the building would enable it to go on transmitting these ways of knowing and scholarly practices and the sense of their significance to new generations of scholars, as well as enable those already schooled in its associated habits of mind to continue to practice them there and experience their pleasures. So that's my interest in the, the library and how it's um, shaping humanities uh, in the 1960s. The next thing I wanted to concentrate then is on the knowledge-making um, processes of uh, the library and the way its actual day-to-day -day practices are shaping them. And this is a picture of uh, Graham Powell, which many of you <laughs> know. Um, unfortunately, Graham uh, couldn't make it, but here he is in the microphone presenting at the opening of the John Ferguson Collection. So I don't think the library had already um, received some of that John Ferguson Collection, but this was my um, major passing over of those materials, because at that time George had approved $300,000 This was very nice to have Graham Powell, and I will be using him uh, sort of uh, in the talk. So while the, the, the building was clearly significant to the way in which the National Library from the 1960s was to increasingly contribute to a particular set of practices of humanities research and scholarship, symbolically as well as practically, other initiatives were equally important. The apparently more quotidian or nitty-gritty practices of institutional institution building deployed by staff, I want to argue, were fundamental to its functioning, but also how it played a major role in the shaping of knowledge making of the humanities at this time. These practices included in the 1960s, and I'm just going to give a very brief example, and it's a very brief list of examples because there was so much going on, but just to give you a bit of a feel of the range of things happening. There was the continuance of the Australian Joint Copying Project in Britain, which moved to microfilming immediately after the Second World War. There was what um, Graham Powell describes as a remarkable escalation in manuscript collection building at this time. The library was growing its Asian collection, including increasingly in this period materials in Asian languages. It was playing a leading role in encouraging collaboration between major libraries in Australia, particularly in the 1960s, in developing coordinated approach, a coordinated approach to bibliographic work and collection building. The library was collaborating with university researchers in the development of the collection, and at the end of the 1960s, establishing an oral history unit, unit just as it continued to build on its activities in the area of film. So there's just an incredible amount of things going on, but that was sort of, those are some of the things that I've been looking at, trying to document the practices of the library around these sorts of processes. So there's a story to be told about each of these initiatives and documenting, as I've been seeking to do during my fellowship, certainly adds to the argument 
that the humanities were flourishing in this time. What they all involved too was a growing sense of confidence in the role of the library in research, in knowledge making, and in playing a leading role in creating a library system in Australia that was linked to major changes in library practice internationally. What we see beginning in the 1950s and continuing apace in the 1960s is the clear emergence of the National Library as a research institution, not just because staff often published research papers themselves or researchers were increasingly using its collection, but because the work of this major public research library in this period was clearly actively shaping how knowledge was made and authorised more generally in the humanities in Australia. The National Library participated in crucial ways in making the humanities in this period, and it has gone on doing so in changing ways over time. What I'm interested in here is how the everyday practices of developing and sustaining the library's operations are as important to this making of the humanities as are the researching of its collections and the writing of scholarly papers. I'm drawing here today on the work of people like Bruno Latour, who've made this same case about scientific knowledge in studying, for example, the day-to-day -day practices to be observed in the scientific library. So I just want to take one example of collection building in the National Library in the 1960s to develop this argument point. Hello, Clive Burmester on the right, and many of you will know and appreciate his work on the John F. A. Watt oral history interviews and personal paper collections have provided particularly interesting material for me in learning about the practices of the library in building up its collections in the 1960s. The stories, for example, of Clive Burmester, who was eventually to become Chief Reference Officer and for the last few years of his career Assistant National Librarian, and of Pauline Fanning, who held a number of positions during her long career in, in the library, including briefly as Director Australian, Nationals Australian National Humanities Library, reveal and draw attention to what at one, one level could be seen as the serendipitous nature of collection building, particularly in the years immediately after the Second World War and into the 1960s. Graham Powell has also documented this carefully in the cases of, for example, Alfred Deakin and the, Hen the Henry Hendricks Richardson papers. He demonstrates the involvement of a large number of individuals and networks of relationships in the pursuit of and negotiations over gaining these collections and, of course, the role of serendipity. Just I'll go further of Pauline Fanning. <laughs> um, standing next to Malcolm Fraser and Sir Arthur Tang on her right and uh, George Stanton, who was effectively So to talk about serendipity in these processes does not mean that we were by any means sorry, to talk about serendipity in these processes does not mean that they were by any means simply ad hoc. There was a great skill, knowledge and judgment involved, as was the case with the more routine practices such as carefully scanning published catalogues of collections on a regular basis. But I'm interested too in the way in which often and the personal characteristics of librarians and their ability to get on, or in some cases not, with certain key donors of particular forms, collections were important. 
as was the case with the famed Hetherick collection. Being in the right place at the right time played an important role in Clyde Burmester gaining the trust of Leon Cashnall to bring his collection of 17th and 18th century political and economic manuscripts from the library, from, from London to the library, as was his having a personal interest in economic history. And networks of relationships and the presence of the library's liaison office in London were crucial while negotiations went on for almost 40 years to build the now outstanding Henry Campbell Richardson collection. So the library was collecting a broad range of materials, particularly after the war, but it had been developing an Australiana collection ever since the early 1900s. It became more focused on this in the 1920s when it acquired the Cook's Journal and other related manuscripts. This focus intensified after the Second World War. So too, the interest in Asia grew. Sparked in part, according to Burmester at least, by the handover of Japanese materials to the library confiscated when the Japanese embassy was closed during the war. I don't know if people who live where else knows more about that story. And more generally, by the issues faced by Australia during that period. From 1951, an exhaustive collection of Indonesian publications commenced, and within two years, the library had committed to the development of major collections in Chinese, Japanese, and Korean languages. Meantime, serendipity still prevailed, when, as is probably well known to this, many in this audience, on several occasions, Harold White, as National Librarian in the 1950s and 60s, appealed to the intellectual interests of Prime Ministers at the time, primarily the Rev. Robert Menzies, to acquire special publications that had become available, such as the Magna Carta and the Nicole Smith in the 18th century collection. Hopefully he'd also succeeded with, with uh, Rick Baldwin about um, this particular collection, John Ferguson collection, Ferguson collection. Well, up until approximately the 1950s, the library's active and opportunistic collection building processes put it in advance of local researchers, according to Burmester. Increasingly, from about 1956, however, the growing strength of the research profile of the Australian National University began to test the research resources of the library. And indeed, the interest of in the library of scholars outside the Canberra region, he says, was also on the increase. Moves began to ma be made for a more systematic approach to acquisition policy in the early 1960s within the National Library itself and through encouraging more collaboration among the main research libraries. Harold White initiated a conference on, the source, on source materials for Australian studies in Canberra in 1961, with 24 institutions represented and 44 in attendees. It was a key moment for the National Library as it increasingly took a leadership role nationally, but also as it encouraged it as in its encouraging libraries to develop a more coordinated approach when competition for, comp for collection and particularly texts and objects was starting to create significant challenges for them all. It was not a sweet accord in this meeting with disagreements in particular about what, whether it was best to limit the number of collecting bodies or whether the more the merrier was best. But agreement was reached that institutions should inform each other about their current programs of collecting in current fields, and that it was in the national interest that the work of locating and collecting and reducing to proper custody Australian source materials should be actively and energetically developed. So I've sketched 
about here um, than in a very brief description of what I've been learning about um, in terms of just some of the key features of collection practices in the library in the years leading up to and during the 1960s. I've drawn attention to the importance of an element of serendipity <coughs> involved in collection building during this period, which of course still plays a role today, as well as the more customary practices of collection building. Both were about a set of judgments of value and intellectual interests that were being played out and exercised in a highly skillful manner by the library staff. And in doing so, they were creating and delivering on a knowledge-making role in the humanities, not just locally, but nationally and internationally. They provided the resources, but their judgments, skills, knowledge, and patience contributed crucially, too, to the focus of and the way in which scholarly or advanced research could be conducted and to the sorts of stories that could be told through the materials collected. The library's practices also contributed to and shaped humanities scholarship in several, several other fundamental ways at this particular historical moment. As the library developed its collections, it was strengthening a sense of itself as a research library. Harold Wright signaled the importance of this understanding of the library as early as 1956 in his submission to the Patent Committee. The library, he said, has become conscious of its responsibility as a centre of scholarly research. This development coincided with humanities scholars in Australian universities starting to pay more attention to research themselves and to understand themselves as doing research rather than scholarship. They're increasingly to understand themselves as doing research projects and beginning to apply for research funds from the newly established Australian Research Grants Committee. Crucially too, they began to see research as being something that you might do in Australia rather than overseas. The very formation of the Australian Humanities Research Council signaled this shift in conceptualising knowledge making in the humanities as research. Its report, The Humanities in Australia, provided a detailed analysis of research in a wide range of fields, documenting recent developments as well as some of the barriers to growth. The report noticed the major increase in research projects that had begun to be undertaken after the war. And of course, the establishment of the Australian National University in 1946 as a research university, even if it did not uh, have a research school focusing specifically on the humanities, began, as I noted earlier, to increase interest in the library collections amongst humanities researchers. Networks of, I'm, I'm going on a bit long, aren't I? <laughs> I've just got a couple more pages, so it's nearly finished. Um, networks of academics and librarians at this time often work together on the development of and creating greater interest in collections, such as through the joint biennial Nicole Smith Seminar of the Library and the ANU on 18th century, 18th century studies commenced in 1966. The library also encouraged academics traveling overseas to keep their eyes open for potential collections to the library. And in focusing on Australiana and increasingly on, increasingly on collections relating to the Asia Pacific region, the library was not only making research in these areas possible, but being at the forefront of this development, as it had been the case with Australiana. The emergence of a great national research library in the 1960s contributed, contributed centrally, I'm arguing then, 
to the growing profile and a new sense of authority of humanities research at this time, and it was actively involved in determining the focus of that research. The networks of relationships and practices that forming its collections were as important as the activities of those involved in researching and writing about collections. The sight of scholars working quietly in the library provided to an arena in which humanities research could be seen to be performed, much like the modern laboratory was increasingly to be used to signify what scientific research looked like. As I've indicated, I'm interested in making these practices of humanities scholars more visible. But I want to demonstrate, too, that the practices of a public research library, which are often conducted behind closed doors of the library's workspaces, should also be recognized clearly as essential to humanities research, that they are part of what humanities research looks like. In conclusion, then, we need to acknowledge and indeed celebrate how the spaces and practices of the library like this one have been crucial in retaining in recent years key elements of a particular culture of knowledge making in the humanities that had shaped and strengthened in exciting ways in the 1960s and then into the 1970s. I hope my very brief history has pointed to some of the ways in which it played this role in, in the knowledge produced and the authority attached to it, as well as forming the habits of mind and sense of self associated with this culture. It is this what, which helps me understand the depth of attachments that people, including myself, have to a building like this one. And the National Library in recent decades, of course, has been highly skilled in adapting to and leading, once again, new ways of thinking and making humanities. But that's another story. Thank you.
talking particularly about PhD students in Cambridge, so let's just see if we have three PhDs coming from Australia, but he was talking more generally as well about um, researchers. But uh, sort of connected in a sense to your point, because one of the things that I didn't realise until I started to um, listen to some of the oral history tapes and people were talking about the beginnings of um, ANU and in fact um, in this tape with Hancock in his lecture talking about Mark Bowman, um, he's just talking about how much the um, ANU was set up to stop the brain drain <laughs> and I thought that was a sort of phrase that we used in the 1980s and 90s but sort of a, so a similar thing that there was a sense in which to sort of turning Australia back to, to sort of be in Australia but then also still because there's just so much going on if you think about all the sorts of um, key texts in the humanities that are coming out at that time as well, the key developments of the music labels starting somewhere in the 1970s, 68, 68, is that right? Yeah, 68, yeah. Right, yeah. So, so there's just so many things where, I mean, it's part of a particular sort of nation formation sort of building sort of um, set of activities and obviously have some sort of um, issues because of that but, but nevertheless yeah um, um, it is very interesting for that reason and the way in which um, the to me the um, National Library is giving a voice to the idea of the humanities in the national interest but in a very different way than we now have to think about the national interest it's sort of about nation formation and Thought 
but actually he was relying on something which had just come into the home very recently. That's really interesting topic because I've been, I was thinking about it when I was using the term serendipity because, and I know that's very much the case in humanities research is that serendipity is crucial, but so is it in science. And it's sort of the scientists are always talking about the things that sort of they've discovered by all sorts of really wonderful places, and, and yet the, everything about the current research system in the ARC sort of is trying to work against that serendipity, but they never do. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I know with my ARC grant, you know, sort of the more I get into the project, the more I'm going to have to, to focus on that and work out more. But I think that's fine. You know, they, they also do sort of um, really rely on the experience of the researcher to be able to produce some of the images. But so, yes, I think that the combination of the serendipity is fascinating. And, and the extent to which people understand the, the way in which the library collections have been built up, of course, I'm sure they're certain famed collections where there's sort of almost myths around them, but other than that, people might not necessarily understand why. And in fact, sort of just in what I've been doing so far, the, the crossovers between the institutions is just extraordinary. So Grenfell Price, um, which was hugely important in the uh, development of the Australian Humanities Research Council and then on into the, um, the Academy of Humanities Institutions. So, but he's also the chair of the, the Library Council um, and probably has a big role in the humanities research side of the People like Trendle, who was obviously the um, head of the University House, is central in the library, is central in, um, in the Academy of Humanities. Grenfell Price and Trendle both have very strong relationships with the, the um, Prime Minister, Menzies, and that's crucial in terms of what happens with them. So I think their networks are absolutely fabulous, and we're sort of starting to track them as a project. History interviews with the librarians are actually fascinating about the connections that they have too, because the, the ones that I've been listening to, particularly from Japan, where the 1930s, that young people, there's 
people are trying to find ways to do things. So it's quite interesting then to look at the fact that there are <laughs> I've been listening to these oral history interviews on um, Radio Live Hot Shuffles. I walk to the library each morning. And, and because you're doing that, you can actually sort of take the time to listen to the whole interview and get all this detailed information that I think is really, in some ways, really important. Yes. Insight into where we've come from and it's about time that somebody started really 
said, I have to move on, so you press me back. I would do our work. Do you trust us that much? <laughs> um, anyway, thank you very much, Leslie. Um, I'll ask you to join me in thanking Leslie again for